this is uh, Nathan Koskovich on location at Java Zeno with John Maximik. Say hi, John. Hi, Nathan. How are you? I'm uh, doing well tonight. Good. And, and what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an urban planner. I work for the city of Decatur. Right, right. So you plan urban environments? Not exactly. I'm, I'm involved with um, um, a multifaceted office where we handle permitting, engineering, uh, codes, and code so, compliance. Yeah, so you're with the city of, account of, of Decatur on the government side where you're dealing with community groups and developers. Are you in the planning section? No, it's its own division, and it's part of Public Works, but it's essentially in the planning field. It's uh, current planning work, and uh, it's a return to local government um, after spending eight years in the nonprofit sector. Right, right. So, um, Where I met you. So what's your day-to-day -day work on, yeah, on, on and planning work on the public works side? What, what's your, what's the mission of the, organi of the organization? Well, right now, um, our primary aim is to set up this new design, environment, construction division of public works and set up a, uh, the reorganization that was envisioned by the city for the last couple of years that bring together engineering and permitting, current planning and development along with uh, a couple of other different pursuits. So are you, I guess are you, are you synergizing, I can't think of a better word, you're bringing together a bunch of different departments to coordinate them better than how it used to be done or something like that? Not you, I mean the city in general, um, you have a role. Right, I mean, I, th you know, I think in my current role, the idea is, is to eventually get very efficient with uh, the way that we review development so that we can spend more time making the development better. Right, right. So you're moving out of the kind of silo, handing things from from site development over and having trying to coordinate better so you have smoother action and also so you have um, a more comprehensive view of the projects as they come in. Yeah, that just well said. I think I'm going to use that in my next staff meeting. Okay, that's cool. You can uh, <laughs> motivate the troops. So the good, now, I think people now understand what you're doing. You're, people go in for permits, they do that all over the place, but... You're working with Decatur to make that a more comprehensive plan process and a more intelligent process to the people who come in. Right, and um, as the uh, as the uh, the center of Decatur grows, um, the complexity of development grows more complicated, and so um, right. I think it's a great place to look into design solutions. Right. So, um, for people who don't know, Decatur is a small town located just outside of Atlanta, which is really kind of wrapped into the whole Atlanta metro area or inside the perimeter environment so it's small town but very urban also and very big city also yeah anyway so a couple miles east of atlanta the an older railroad center than atlanta itself yeah oh really yeah so but anyway that's not what we were going to talk about we just wanted to give you uh establish your bona fides and give your employee employers a little little face time but um we're going to talk about i think what you wanted to talk about was some of your thoughts about city planning, the importance, some of the um, seminal projects that uh, that are important to you. That was where we were saying. Seminal influences, seminal right? Seminal influences sound as obnoxious as we can about it. Right. I think, um, yeah, you know, Nathan, you've heard my rant over and over again, so it's just a matter of which rants you'll get tonight. But, uh, um, you know, I've always said that planning is about what goes where. You know, I explained to people in my family that, it's where the highway goes, you know. 
but if what if planning is in simple terms what goes where, then design might be what goes where and how. Yeah, yeah. The what goes where is interesting. We talked about this with Heather um, Al Hadef, where she talked about the what being like the program. Somebody's making a cappuccino behind us. Uh, so there's the what and then where do you go? How do you dispose of um, different uses in the best way? And that's all goes in the planning. We've been doing that since the beginning of the 20th century, basically. It's this whole underlying structure of how we build cities that most people don't notice, but it's right there. Um, so the what would be program, it would be um, use types, uh, industrial, light industrial, residential, and more and more, it's a mix of those to get a more efficient use. Um, and you said of planning is, uh, what did you say, what's the what? What goes where, and then design, or urban design would be what goes where and how. And how. Uh, so you want to elaborate on the how? How? Yeah, the, you know, when I came up um, in the field of city planning about 20 years ago, it wasn't always safe to talk about design, and and now it is, um, thanks to some courageous courageous people in, in different camps, such as smart growth, uh, the environment, new urbanism, right. and and architecture, who've always been there, right. um, and and. In a way, it's interpreting city planning in, in the oldest definition of the field. Right, right. I think we got to a point which was kind of a, a mechanistic, um, fill-in-the-dots way of planning. This is industrial, it goes there. And maybe you can talk a little bit what you mean by design being about the how or the what. I've forgotten, I've forgotten all of our uh, newspaper terms. Um, but how does design... Design is probably kind of um, the massaging of all those parts. Thing. Yeah, and I think so. When I came up um, in graduate school, I, I learned about the basics of urban planning. But in uh, in the shared school of landscape architecture at UMass Amherst, landscape architecture, regional planning, and I think a lot of that rubbed off on me. I didn't quite know what to do with it in the first couple of years of my career, but I started gravitating towards community appearance and community appearance um, uh, guidelines, design guidelines, uh, things like that. And like I said before, this wasn't exactly mainstream in the early 90s, but um, it has become now. And I started following that curiosity a little bit more, not so much in practicing, because I'm not a designer and I'm not an uh, architect, but I started getting really interested in, in, all the, in all of the things around urban design, like uh, codes that allow for designers to work or uh, communicating ways where designers can do more or where elected officials can be advocates of design, or planners can can be more of advocates of design. Right, right. There's um, Sometimes if we forget that legal is the bare threshold, and it's a formwork we can work within to, to achieve goals, and that's why we have the plans, not to enforce the rules, um, but to achieve certain ends, to achieve good, livable cities that promote health and wellness and economic development and all those other things and so it sounds like you're talking a little bit about how to empower people to work within those tools which sometimes end up capturing them. right and it, 
it's it's challenging uh, because because the field of planning is already broad, and I'm proud to be an urban planner right. because we look right. at the big picture. But when you add design to it, it's like almost asking too much. But yeah, <laughs> um, you know, we want we want people um, in all um, you know in in all roles to start to be advocates, to start to see the opportunities. That's what I keep coming back to is seeing opportunities. The, uh, one really good quote that comes back to me is uh, getting elected officials to know enough about design so that they can be advocates of design when those opportunities come up. Right, that really overlaps with this architecture and design center's mission of, of raising the understanding of design in the community among all decision makers and, and government would be agents would be along that right at the top, which is really needed in this city, I think. There haven't been a lot of people who've seen design, but design, I don't just mean that as products, but I mean that as process also, and as an attitude towards design, and, and being exposed to that, most people come around and begin to understand it and be really, really big advocates. Right, and the thing that appeals to me about design centers and the, um, the ADC is the the design proponents in Metro Atlanta have been fragmented and largely silent up until now. And yeah. you know, social media helps all that. Like, social media helps a lot of things along. But um, we're at the advent of a time when when we could start to come together and um, have that kind of unified voice that maybe some other metro areas have had for a while. In fact, just you and I were talking over dinner about uh, uh, the, the, the old-fashioned... Uh, tradition of having uh, you know traditional newspapers hiring design uh, beat writers yeah actually having somebody whose job it is to go out and can give a educated thoughtful criticism of what they think of a building or a development that the public can like a movie review take it or leave it but at least it's, it's out there as part of the dialogue right right and yeah. they might you know they might they might really uh, frustrate you you know you might not agree with the person all the time but you know, every once in a while you run into somebody like Mark Hinshaw who worked out in Seattle for, for years doing that role. And uh, you know, he's well known in landscape architecture and architecture as someone who knows urban design really well. And you're reading that every he's Sunday. Seattle, you said, or Portland? He's still in Seattle. Okay, yeah. Uh, but he worked for a Seattle newspaper. Yeah. But you read that on Sunday and, you know, you're not going to... Nine times out of ten, he knows what he's talking about. Well, and once it's out there, you got to deal with it, whether you agree with it or not. You've got to then form an opinion to counter that once once it comes in, or or form an opinion to support it. Um, so yeah, you've brought along um, a few uh, aids for yourself. It looks like some of you had some pieces of, of paper and books for your seminal works. You want to uh, dig into some of those, and we can talk about them. Yeah. So like, so as as I was uh, learning the trade of urban planning in local government. In the late 90s, I started taking classes and reading different things and, um, and finding out about uh, the practice of urban design and, and what people have said about it and read about it and things like that. The couple of things that I brought that stand out, uh, Alex Krieger's uh, article in 2004 called Territories of Urban Design, um, talk about design being a practice and also... Uh, something that you do and something that you observe at the same time and and everything in between right that, that was an article that i think is like undervalued in the field and what's his background alex krieger is a architect and a professor in the boston area harvard university so what what is uh 
fields of urban design, how does he define a field of urban design? It was a, I was afraid you're going to make me paraphrase it. It's a pretty long article. It's a pretty long article. <laughs> but he's got, it's pretty cool. He called it Territories of Urban Design, and he's got about nine long paragraphs um, explaining. Does he break different territories? Or? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So what kind of territories do you Well, he talks about smart growth. He talks about advocacy. He talks about theory. So and he just kind of puts it all together in one article. So realms of, of realms of being a good urbanist, I guess. Like you could be a public advocate, you could be a city planner, you could be an architect. The different ways, and um, it's interesting the way articles like that have come out recently in the past few years. Um, what you kind of end up getting out of it is that being a good urbanist is really about being a good citizen. And whatever your role in life is, how do you advocate for a better community for yourself? Um, which starts with the, the built environment, the things that you said earlier, the things that are there, and then how they're put there, how well are they put there and integrated. Right, right. And I think Alex understood that. I mean, he was working at the, the highest levels of the field at Harvard University and with his clients, but he also had this sensibility to reach out to people who are making decisions uh, at a more basic level. You know, the, this, this book that I've been carrying around with me for a couple of years it's a, uh, a, a flimsy, paper-bound book called A Design Primer for Cities and Towns. It looks like a thick magazine. Yeah. I, I sort of stole it from the town of Braintree. I need to return it back. Braintree, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where John Quincy Adams is from. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, yeah, so you've got a... Is yeah. that, that Alex's book or is that a... It's not his book exactly, yeah, but it, it was in the library, yeah. Okay, so he's talking about being a, an advocate. Different, if you read his article, you hear about different ways you could do that. What was that book about? It's just a, exactly that. He, he, instead of high-minded, you know, he, instead of the high-minded language of territories for urban design, he's, like, boiled it down and translated it. And that's a key word that I use often when I talk about the design center is translating it. Um, into, into everyday language as opposed to the language of expertise and jargon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in your different fields, you hear about this term flexing communication styles. Well, that's what the urban design community, in my opinion, really needs to do. That's why, I mean, that's one of the key reasons why I joined, I joined the organization is that, is that I, want, I want to challenge the design community at all levels to, to flex their communication styles. So they reach people instead yeah. of instead of uh, just talking to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like um, that's it. No, there's a huge problem in all these professions, and architects have a whole um, set of languages like didactic and architectonic that are all kind of pointless words that cover up that what you're talking about are really very simple ideas. They're very powerful ideas, but we feel the need to dress them up talk to each other and city planning is the same way and I, I can't help but think an article like the one that uh, you're talking about is a response to high modernism design that starts with Corbusier it starts further back than that to kind of codify and it kind of reaches its peak with Robert Moses we're like we're the experts we're going to make this happen and it all starts from an academic idealized version but people like him it sounds like we're looking at like well this is really how decisions are made so we want to do this better how do, we, how do we get engaged on these other levels and responding to Jane Jacobs and her activism and grabbing the process from Robert Moses? I think so. You know, I think planners have figured that out pretty well across the board. And the, it's, very well. it's consistent with what's going on with um, the theory and practice of uh, charrettes 
and yeah. you know, community participation for for decision making and yeah, planning. And what's, a, what's a charrette for people who don't speak the language? A charrette is a you know it's a multi-day ongoing facilitated planning exercise where people in the community are are asked to come in and and provide direct input into some planning decision. Right. Um, right. And it's usually design based um, applications. Yeah. So um, you have experts that are working with them. To right. Keep and it, them on subject, but to get their knowledge. Yeah, and it's no. I mean, it's no different than what's going on in you know in management principles, where you have high per, you know, high performance um, management theories, yeah. uh, inclusive decision making, you know, servant leadership, that that kind of stuff. And Do you want to grab that, another one? That's all good. Yeah, and I guess the point I wanted to make though is that it's uh, there's there's a line between. I mean, there's a lot. This, you know, my, my dilemma in all this is that there's there's a there's age-old design principles that architects and urban designers use all the time, but there's also this this participation that's right. that's easy Pretty these new. days, and and you know, social media fuels it, charrette's process fuels it. Yeah. And the I think um, the real beauty comes in when you when you uh, combine expertise with community participation. Yeah, and I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. The kind of community participation is kind of a continuation of the process where we, we started hundreds of years ago with monarchy and moved towards democracy and like continue to expand the decision-making base for society. Um, so that's interesting to tie it with those older uh, planning ideas. And how old are those planning ideas? So how far back do they go? Because you've, you've referenced those a couple of times. Yeah, we'll get to that. You know, but like, okay. The one funny thing, though, I want to say is that you know you have... You have situations out there where the where the the talented, almost artistic designers who are standing in front of the public with the funny glasses, which I once had. Yeah, John has funny glasses. He doesn't wear them when he goes out in public. <laughs> you do. You they, glasses. Yeah, yeah. They 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 have to listen to the public because the public lives on the street all the time. They come back to that street every night. Oh yeah, um, they're, they're the people that ultimately you're designing for. Yeah. But on the flip side. Yeah. Yeah. The folks have folks have to have to realize that that um, there are age-old design principles and um, and the uh, the really really good designers know how to draw on those principles and and draw on creativity as well. Yeah. For solutions, so it's it's just trade-off. I mean, it's just kind of like this the tension that that I really like about setting urban design. Yeah. But the principles that you asked about, and those are, that's what I want to talk about. They're, you know, okay. the, the illustrated books by Francis Ching. Yeah, we bought all those in, uh, in architecture school. Or is that, is that what you have to get, like, the first day you get there? Like the first day you get like a bookstore. Studio, you get a couple of Ching books to yeah. like begin to get the, the principles of design down because he breaks them down very. Yeah, well, I, and I try to keep them out of my sight because, like, if I, if I run into a Ching book, you know, I can lose an hour just flipping through. Yeah. And I, I'm going to grab yours for a second. Yeah, I have this on my shelf. Architecture, form, and space. Um, and he just talks about really basic ideas like shape and silhouette or a object, a figure ground, which is a big concept, which is a... Well, figure ground would be if you have a picture of a man, the man's the figure, the ground and everything around him. So he just these, this language starts to come out of that. Mm -hmm. So um, how are you exposed to this? How was I exposed to this? Yeah, um, the, 
architecture class, history of urban plan, drawing, art? Well, I certainly didn't come at it from art. I, th I think it had something to do with, uh, with uh, coming up in landscape architecture, regional planning at UMass. Mm -hmm. And it, I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking about the conversation we were going to have last night. And um, uh, I remember this funny story about we were in a, we were in a design studio about a, an open space near the, uh, on the campus. And somebody criticized a, a standing light column, saying something about it will never last through a couple of New England winters because of the snow and ice and wind. Right, right. And... Uh, I don't know if it lasted or not, but I mean, the, the sort of thing stuck with me is that it's really not about how it looks or what it's for, but somebody was thinking about the durability right, right, right. Of, that, of that light column. Yeah, as a and design element. Yeah, so I think these things kind of just um, ebbed into my mind um, during those couple of years, and then um, as I had some free time after I started working, you know, taking courses at the... Um, um, at the BAC in Boston, and um, you know, going to lectures, picking up books, you know, yeah, yeah, advancing things um, in the places where I worked the first yeah. couple of years. Yeah, there's some great um, kind of human scale ideas in this book. I, I always love this one drawing here where he shows people standing on platforms and people not sitting on platforms, and how that changes the relationship between. Um, between the people. At a, at a certain height, a person on a platform can talk to a person on the ground. At another height, they're looking over the crowd. And at another height, they're kind of in an exalted position. And so these, and this is something that kind of sticks in my mind constantly that I, I don't even realize it until I open the book and it's, it's been in my brain for so long. Um, was there, do you, does anything particularly jump out for me from this that you remember? Or? I think the thing that I see the most uh, in the built environment, really, you know, in places where I work, is is uh, is sort of configuration of a pathway and circulation. Yeah, yeah. Which he, you know, he touches on. At, he touches on in, in great length at the very beginning, you know, how people use space, how people move through a space, things like that. And uh, yeah. I mean, whether you're in retail or in urban planning, it's kind of. You know, right in front of us all, you know, we don't always nail it. Yeah, and circulation not just as a, um, a mechanical thing to move people through, but as a, an emotional and psychological progression where whether you're aware of it or not, it's preparing you for where you're going. Um, an example I think of that I've never been there, but I've heard stories of a, from a professor of mine had been to a cemetery, and before you go into the cemetery, you walk through a long concrete tunnel and it echoes, and the echo makes it hard to hear people, so you stop talking. And then when you get into the cemetery, you're very quiet, and that kind of transcends into reverence. Yeah, and so um, there's a lot of those ideas in Qing about how do you build... It, it's spelled out very um, clearly, but it's not necessarily dry. And they're illustrated. Oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're almost all Completely figures. illustrated, yeah. yeah. Like, there's barely any words in them at all, but they're just kind of great little diagrams of things. Um, anything else you want to say about it? No? No, not there. But they, So there's the, the technicality of design, and, you know, I want to get back to the 
the thing that fascinates me about it is, and, and this touches on the center, is, is you know, how we communicate that. Um, there were a couple. I boiled it down to a couple of things. Okay. I told you these before. This is, you know, my old rant from two years ago. Um, <laughs> you have the fact-based interpretations, and that's sort of like the old-fashioned uh, design critic in the newspaper. You know, someone who's trained, experienced, um, giving, you know, public opinion about something. And then another is um, translate what we mean by flexing communication styles. So if you're talking to developers, you you put it one way. If you're talking to uh, community groups, you put it another way. Um, and then the third thing is, um, which I think is really cool, is elevating issues in order to be a catalyst. So if there's a huge opportunity at some site, the advocates come out of um, the woodwork to um, put forward, you know, the best design opportunities. And I mentioned earlier in our conversation about seeing opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you see an opportunity, somebody from the design um, uh, camp should say something. The, the, yeah. I think that's actually a really strong point that, that it's, especially in this community, I don't think it's very strong. I think there are a lot of professionals who, who pride themselves on providing good services on time, but steered away from uh, design principles, and so the community tends to be relatively mute on that, and and also seems to uh, undervalue the power of just bringing up a point. Because, well, why would you do that? We're never going to change this. And you're like, well, you don't just change it by going in and having the power to make somebody do something. By being able to have a, a voice, as you're talking about, based on fact-based analysis, you can then change it by bring, that's a, these, by having a good reputation and bringing up the issue. You can say, this group said this about it. And then it's like the, the discussion about the critic we had earlier. Whether it's right or wrong or you agree with it or not, you have to deal with it. And at that point, the center has kind of won, the, won its job. Design is now an issue that people talk about. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then one of my influences, well, more I guess more than 10 years in it, uh, ago, was uh, a former architect named Tim Culbehouse, who's based in California. Okay. And for a while, at least, he had a practice of uh, communicating yeah. design and communicating um, strategies for design firms. How would he... Um so you who develop strategies for communicating, for communicating the design to people, actually go in and, and, and deal with them. Um, you want? Is there something to talk about um, how those strategies emerge, or do you have a criticism of how architects and designers communicated that he started with? Well, I'll give you a couple of the headers from the article that I'm carrying around with me. Uh, uh, the article is appeared in AIA's Best Practices series, is Tips oh, wow. for Explaining Design. And a couple of them include, um, you know, uh, focus on relationships, um, relate everything to experience, use analogies, um, think, in, think cocktail conversation. You know, so you're saying boil it down. Uh, yeah. Um, you're not, you're not presenting to a bunch of professors. Right, right. Explain it to people like they, basically what something like saying is explain it to people like they don't do this for a living. Mm -hmm. and, and, and 
the, the, cocktail, the cocktail conversation is a great comment. Yeah, so he'd be great to invite over to Atlanta. Um, I, I met him over the phone when I asked him to be on the panel, but it didn't work out because um, mm -hmm. of scheduling and all, but um, be great to have him speak to our board. That would be great to speak to our board. It would be great to, to have him speak to some other uh, professional design groups, too. You want to take a break? We'll come right back. So, yeah, we're back. Um, we've gone through some of your books. We didn't talk about the Bacow book, the, the Eileen Bacow book. Oh. Which is part of our, one of our first conversations. I know. I, just, I went I, out and I bought the book after we talked, so I think that would be a good one to talk you're, about. You're right. I mean, I just told you that I hit my big three or four, and then you reminded me of probably the biggest one I missed before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Adele I, Fleet Bacow. Yeah, Fleet Bacow. Um, and she's, you want to tell her background and her... I actually don't know too much about her, but I had a good chance of meeting her in Boston 15 or 18 years ago um, as I was starting my career. Okay. Um, I pulled her book off the shelf at uh, Northeastern University Library and uh, found a way to meet her. I mean, I asked her out for coffee or something. Yeah. The book she's, um, I'm trying to remember because I read the book recently at your recommendation. It was um, Strategies for Getting Better Design. She was working, I think, for the Massachusetts Department of Art, or no, it was like history or something. Very, very, that made sense. And she started working with like Massachusetts Department of Public Works and so forth to start getting better, to better design. They had the design expertise, right? So she would go to like the the, big, the one that took out the engineers who would just build a DOT bridge, and they thought, well, the architect just comes and pretties it up. And she convinced them that's not what they do. But she does in a lot of programs like that. Does that jog your memory some from 15 years ago? Exactly, exactly. And she boiled it down. She translated it. She flexed communication styles, all that. Yeah. For a lot of hard-to-move agencies. Yeah, like public works in Massachusetts, same thing as like Department of Transportation. It's like the last giant socialist, we don't give a crap what's practical or we don't have to have justifications. We're just telling you this is our standard. Our standard is a seven-foot-high fence that people throw bricks on the highway. And you're like, I've been to Chicago. There's no seven-foot-high fence. People aren't throwing bricks on the highway. You're like, well, the people in Georgia are awful, so that's our standard. Although GDOT's getting better. So she's worked with departments like that and moved them and got them to value design and see design. Right. And, that, and I recall from the book, she, like, as Ching used illustrations, she used illustrations too, but she used... Uh, like cartoon characters or something like that. Yeah, that's right. She would have little uh, like comic strips illustrating points in there. There again, it's it's this you know um, boiling it down to something that people can absorb. Right, right. And understanding that ideas don't have to sound sophisticated to be sophisticated. So um, that's a good one. I forgot about that. Yeah. Should wrap up here, I guess, and uh, we've gone through all your books. Uh, is there any? Uh... <laughs> I don't know. Let's like switch from. I mean, switch from that, and let's talk about um, how people are. I'll ask you a question. I mean, how people are, how people in Metro Atlanta are best communicating about design on social media and and new media. You know, I think there are a bunch of little. Um, I think the Beltline's important. I was talking to Patrick Sweeney about this on one of the podcasts. It's beginning to delineate an in-in town, but it's also becoming a social condenser. Like, there are people and groups of people 
who care about design, and the Beltline's the first really great design thing to happen in Atlanta probably since John Portman started working here. And people just like, like, so Beltline's become this thing, if it's happening on Beltline or it's Beltline attached or social media, people zoom to it. To the point where, um, and my wife works at Beltline, so I have to say this, uh, Beltline will sometimes tell people like, you don't want us to endorse this because you want this to be a neighborhood event. And if we endorse it, you're going to get flooded by people from all over Atlanta. Like, not that they're trying to be negative, they're trying to work with people. Like, if you want this year neighborhood to come out and see something, we'll be there, we'll help you for it, but we just, we don't want to also overwhelm you. Like, it's that big a draw. Um, and there's some great blogs out there now. ATL Urbanist, Architectural Tourist, um, Peach Pundit, if you're more on the conservative side, um, Bitter Southerner. There are a lot of blogs that started staking themselves to what Atlanta is. And I think Atlanta forever pretended to be something it wasn't, like an international city or the New South. And about five years ago, gave up on that and just said, I don't, we don't know what we are. And out of that have become people who are reclaiming Atlanta's identity is Southern, but differentiated from the rest of the South. And those blog posts, um, we heart Atlanta, we love Atlanta. The, the hashtag photographer campaign is another one out there. It's been really strong and um, it's a, sort of a smaller, more interesting, but funkier. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a group that's, and I think it's indicative of Atlanta, where it's beginning to differentiate itself from the Atlanta region. But we say Atlantans, and we mean people as far away as uh, Coweta County. And I, I, I've come to realize, I saw this for the first time ever, somebody was complaining about traffic. And they, she lived in Decatur, she's driving into Atlanta. She's complaining about a bike lane, and people immediately pointed out she's not an Atlantan. The bike lanes were for people who live in Atlanta. It's a little divisive, but it was the first time I've kind of seen people beginning to draw that circle. So I think that circle being begin to be drawn, that Atlanta is not Cobb County or um, Clayton County, I guess it's a little Clayton County. It's something distinct, and it's beginning to draw its own personality, and you see many social media, um, but it goes in the public too. So, uh, Streets Alive, Atlanta Streets Alive, is something that's not really known outside of Atlanta, but it's hugely popular. Living Walls is the same way. So that's how. Um, but Atlanta's, I think that what those all have in common is Atlanta's very voluminous, but it's very uh, low density. So little voices can start carrying a lot of weight and pushing things along, which is how the Beltline happened. Ryan started working. Um, with a couple of people, and I've forgotten the woman's name who was with the city, who was very important in it. And it just started getting traction, and, and the city took over, as opposed to the way something like the Falcon Stadium happened, which is the old way it happened. Which is, some rich guys get together, they decide it's gonna happen, and then they're gonna go get the backing of the city, and then you find yourself saying, well, wait a second, how is this actually good for the neighborhood? It looks like the old stadium, and the neighborhood around there did terrible under that. Well, I guess, looks like is wrong. People are gonna think the windows or the doors are the roofs flapping open it looks nothing like the Georgia Dome but you and I have had discussions about that and I think you've actually articulated really well what what um, isn't wrong with the design but what doesn't serve the stated mission that was sold to the public when public money went to it that it was going to make the neighborhood better can you, you think of some of those criticisms you had at the time I, I mean can you yes. voice, do you want do you feel comfortable voicing them I mean some people don't yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll voice them if you don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's it's just how 
how the people relate to the to the stadium and if it has some sort of human scale to it at all. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure and um, haven't seen the, the detailed designs for that, but we for what we all said when we first saw it is that this looks beautiful, it looks great. But all the images are what it's like to be in the stadium when the game's on, not around the stadium. And there are no images of, of the street. Like what's it look like from this from the neighborhood? Right. I think we did talk about how it looks um, from a helicopter at night for a Sunday or Monday night game, but yeah. then how it looks uh, in the middle of May when there's just you know no games being played and right. I think and I think we'll know the centers being um, successful when other people start raising those issues also start saying. Have you seen the design for the new multimodal station? The renderings that came out for that. That's a that's a design that shows street level exactly what it's going to look like, plans for the future, how it fits in with the neighborhood. It's, if you compare and contrast the two, it tells you a lot about um, not whether they're a good design or not, but the priorities of the designers. The priorities for the Falcon Stadium was we want it to be a great fan experience above all. Right, and, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying anybody's doing a really great job of it, but community engagement on a large-scale project like that is something we we can endeavor to do. I um, a lot of lip service paid to it in this town. Yeah, I lived in Boston when um, when the owners of the Red Sox wanted to expand or change Fenway Park in some way, and um, the neighborhood, <laughs> I mean, gave them a hard time, but, yeah, you know, they were certainly more engaged, and they and and I think they ended up winning in a sense because they uh, because they weren't satisfied with the with the proposal. And Fenway Park is more or less the way it was before those talks started. Is that the, I guess the next move for for Boston was like putting seats on top of the Green Monster and like figuring out other ways to get the revenue they want, as opposed to just blowing out a side of the building. I guess. Yeah, well, I think Fenway's an anomaly because it's sort of a museum to baseball, and yeah. uh, I wouldn't wish on, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody to try to change Fenway because it, um, it's just going to be uh, too hard, either for baseball lovers or the community. Yeah, but in a certain way, it's actually become a model. Like you look at the new San Francisco Park, um, and, and just tying it back to the Falcon Stadium. Um, Baseball has several stadiums that are new stadiums that are built on principles they've learned from Wrigley and Fenway to be integrated into an urban environment. Now, nobody's really done that with football, but there's some ideas there that could be translated over. Um, so sometimes you say it's an anomaly, and sometimes you say it's a one-of-a-kind mm -hmm. uh, model. I, I haven't been following, but I certainly hope that Cobb is at least trying to do some of that ground-level planning for the mixed-use area around the stadium that's being proposed for uh, Cumberland area. I, I've seen some of it. It looks kind of um, Atlantic Station to me. No, not the appearance of it, but I'm going to tell you the, the process of engaging the community. Oh, the process of engagement. Yeah, yeah. How it's all going to I don't know what's out. happening with that. And I hope, I hope it is. Actually, I know. No, it's not, because when they did the vote, they, they, they only took 15 public uh, comments at the meeting, and then they pretty much shut people out who were trying to talk about it. So it was... It was not a well-managed process in that regard. Um, but that's awful negative trail we've gone down. Maybe we should come back around. Uh, 
What do you hope? Um, maybe we can can move towards a, a climax or at least an end. What do you? What do you, well, you you moved to Atlanta here from Ohio and Massachusetts. So what was your first impression of Atlanta? I guess where do you see the potential of Atlanta? Where do you see it going? I'll throw all those out at once. Oh, it's what was it like when you first came to Atlanta? What was your first kind of impression? Well, my first impression was that it was hot. <laughs> it was really hot. <laughs> I developed a greater tolerance for heat and humidity. And yeah. Uh, that's a good thing, and um, I've come to enjoy it. And um, uh, there's uh, someone who told me that there's a there's a, a certain level of freedom here in Atlanta, um, and as opposed to Boston, yeah, kind of an Ethan Frome community staring at you thing. Or <laughs> what is it? Yeah, there's a certain level of uh, freedom. Uh, with the way he said it was. Uh, um, to be your own artist, you know, and uh, and I think that it's still like that, um, but it's getting better because um, we've adopted more good urbanism, I think, in the in-town areas, and uh, for a whole host of reasons, yeah. um, people are returning to the city, uh, yeah. to everybody's credit, you know. When did you come here then? I came here in winter 2003. 2003. Yeah, it's, it's been in those last, although a lot, it started, people have been here will say it started in the late 70s, but it's really been in the last five years or so that you see the real switch and the real results of a lot of that. Right, lots of credit to go around. Oh, yeah, lots of, lots of groups. And I think that's one thing that's merging from Atlanta is, is that Atlanta has that, which is different from the region around it. It also has designers and city planners who are doing things that nobody in the country is doing which is even all the more reason to draw this line around a community and say we're here and, and we're valuable. Right, right. And I think that's what's, you know, that's why, that's why I'm so excited about Center is that it, it can unify people who have um, been fragmented and, like I said, largely silent for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or, or at least... Um, their voices weren't being heard over the din, and now there's enough voices that it's carrying a little bit. Feels good to me, you? Sure.